Hello, comrades. It's episode 119 of This Machine Kills, your premium episode for this week. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. So we are going to just pick right back up with a with a nice little to be continued uh, episode on Adar. You know, in the in the free episode, we went through a lot, kind of given this foundation of the the technological architecture and organizational and operational kind of planning around the Adar system, right? You know, just the world's largest biometric identity database, you know, just for a little refresher, we're talking about enrolling over 1.2 billion residents in India into a biometric identity uh, database, giving them a unique identifier tied to demographic information, you know, address, age, stuff like that, uh, as well as fingerprints, uh, iris scans, and a photograph of the face. So, you know, it's, it's a lot going on, massive technological feat. And as we kind of ended off on the, uh, on the free episode, right, talking about two things that we want to dig into even deeper here. So one is, what does this actually mean for uh, an approach to governance, right? A kind of technopolitics of governing, of statecraft, of administering a population, running social services, tying it to, you know, the, the state becoming this platform for other, not just public services, but private services to build on top of this, you know, identity as a service, uh, you know, architecture of Adar. So, you know, that's one aspect of, of that. And then the other aspect is that really crucial question, right? We've heard from Ranjit Singh's ethnography, ethnographic work, which we're going to build on and uh, draw from even more in this episode. You know, his ethnographic work with the designers and engineers and marketers and, you know, all the people involved in creating Adar, we heard from them what they thought they, what they wanted it to be, how they were conceptualizing this system. But we, of course, really won't understand how Adar has been going, you know, since its in, uh, instantiation in 2010. Uh, unless we really get a picture of what it means on the ground, you know, the street level bureaucrats, the people, you know, in charge of enrolling the the population into this biometric database, uh, the the experiences of, you know, people themselves, especially thinking about, you know, Adar as a technology kind of sees, has a model of a homogenous, you know, datafied subject right this this model of 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 the perfect user of adar um but you know populations especially one as huge and diverse as india's population is necessarily heterogeneous which means there's going to be a lot of people that don't fit that model most people aren't going to fit that model of the ideal adhar subject uh, and so we really have to understand what that means. And thinking back to a quote from one of, uh, from, from, from last episode, right? Uh, Ranjit Singh talking to some activists for, for NGO called Right to Food, who said that, you know, with a population as big as India's, 
numbers, it's all a number game, right? A 1% error rate means 13 million people are affected, right? So the, there's, there's no room for error here. But as we'll find out as we go through this research, that there is a lot of error happening. There's a lot of exclusion happening. There's a lot of people being left out of a system that is by design meant to be a, a, a system of universal inclusion and identification. So that's, that's the game plan here. You know, it's a lot to get through, but it's, it's really interesting stuff, really crucial to understand, and just pretty wild that, uh, you know, we don't hear almost anything about Adar um, outside of, you know, these, these, these kind of academic studies, you know, and even then, not a whole lot. Yeah, and I think that also looking into Ardar is uh, going to be good because it gives a good insight into the sort of large-scale surveillance and, and data systems, these biometric databases that are being rolled out increasingly around the world that also don't get much scrutiny beyond uh, outcomes, right? And um, I mean, that outcomes are important, but that is to say there's not a lot of ethnographic work that we're getting on... Um, all of the surveillance systems that are being built up around the world and part of that is because they're not going to let you in, right? Um, mm -hmm. And they're more ostensibly built as surveillance systems than Ardar, which is like roll, being rolled out as, an, as ostensibly verification of identity first and deduplication of records in a country that is data rich, but, um, but ha is riddled with inaccuracies in you rendering people legible to the state. Um, and that the, if only they were able to do this, then they would be able to optimize uh, the welfare systems. They'd be to optimize private commerce. They'd be able to optimize provisions of good and services, right? Um, and so they end up pushing for this creation of a new, of, a, of an infrastructure that is supposed to be blind to the biases or politics of you know the state and its bureaucracies because it's just supposed to be this neutral storehouse of everyone's records, but it just, you know, as no surprise, it ends up because of who, because of design choices, because of, you know, where it gets rolled out first, because of incentives and in, um, what types of records are prioritized or because of what sort of technologies are developed in tandem with, you know, biometric surveillance, right? That it ends up unevenly, um, affecting each and every one of the people who do get and in included, right? Leaving out some who then don't get access to the services, which I think is, you know, as we'll talk about, uh, becomes an even bigger problem than the typical um, holes that that uh, bureaucracy has that leave a certain amount of poor people, a certain amount of homeless people, a certain amount of uh, ill people um, from being able to adequ adequately claim, you know, or get access to goods and services. Not that they're even adequate to begin with. I think that, you know, opening up here in the uh, introduction section of it, right, there's a, there's a good chunk uh, that you had highlighted, uh, Jathan, actually, that I'll quote at length here. Um, and this is laying out the, the analysis, the analytical framework that they're working with, right, that I think will inform sort of the analysis that we'll be going ahead with. Building on this tradition, we developed... So this is from just, just a, a verbal citation. So this is from the paper by Randall right. Singh and Stephen Jackson called Seeing Like an Infrastructure. And all yeah, of this yeah. will be in the episode description, links to all this stuff, just for the right. reader or the listener. 
Um, and so it goes building on the tradition. We developed the analytic perspective of seeing like an infrastructure to show how large scale data systems, in this case, Ardar, India's and the world's largest biometric based identification database, engender profound and uneven consequences in the everyday practice of claiming and exercising citizen rights. Seeing like already indicates a central claim of this paper that knowledge of others, ourselves, the world is always partial and perspectival, perhaps especially in all encompassing systems that purport to inclusion and universalism. Following a long history of standpoint epistemology, seeing like means seeing from a way of understanding and acting in the world that emerges from a particular perspective and experiential set. This in turn is connected to the categories through which experience presents itself, categories that are increasingly given to us by consequential data systems that shape contemporary life and life chances. Seeing like an infrastructure thus invites us to place ourselves as actors or analysts in the perspective of these systems and attend to how they account for real world entities through data categories. So basically trying to push people to, to, to step back and ask, okay, what does it, what is the perspective that comes from an infrastructure, whether it's the builders of an infrastructure or whether it is the people who are, um, or what, or whether it's the builders of the infrastructure who are establishing that perspective for bureaucracies to organize around, or for firms to organize for, around, or from people who are within it and saying, "Okay, now that we are within this infrastructure, what are we going to do? What are we actually doing?" Going on, you know, they lay out that there are two sort of infrastructure. There are two sort of perspectives that emerge from this. There's one where you simplify the world. Um, you simplify the world so that you can categorize it more easily, and as a result, you flatten and you erase details, and that. You know, these attempts at reflection and insight into how, quote, practices of representing people and people's efforts in claiming representation through categories mutually shape each other, right? You can step back and think of seeing like an infrastructure as a way of taking the world that gets simplified and flattened and, and figuring out a way to organize relations between those simplified categories that still have a meaningful, something meaningful to say about the world, right? Or something that the system may believe is still meaningful about the world that can be gleaned at whatever scale uh, you're looking at, whether it's like, you know, zooming in on particular details of individuals or looking at large scale groups. Right. Uh, and this is, this feeds into their con conceptualization of resolution, which we'll talk, I think we'll talk about a little bit later, but, uh, but gets developed throughout the, the paper. Right. So the question is, okay, what, what is being simplified? What gets flattened? What gets excluded in the name of universal of creating a universalized perspective or framework, right? Um, and what is it that they're prioritizing or believing that if they focus on, they can include everybody? And then, and, and of course, by virtue, what are they excluding and ignoring um, to create some semblance of a universal a categorization that's going to be used here. And, and, and then I guess to boil it all down, like how is an infrastructure going to be able to uh, look at 1.2 billion people and figure out ways that they can all be grouped together uh, with the biometrics, of course, but then also in any other subcategories that might determine who gets access to what service, who's not getting access to what service, why some people or other people shouldn't get access to a service, how you make sure they're not getting access to it or making sure that they're getting access to it. I mean, what what's preventing uh, Indian government from, well, I mean, I know what's going to prevent them from doing this, but what, what stops uh, someone from coming along and using this system to basically 
perform a mass genocide. I, I mean, I'm no expert. Still a caste system there, if I'm not mistaken. There's like that being put into this identification program. Like, you know, uh, someone's religion, mm. someone's caste, like tools that could be used later if someone comes along who's like, you know, more extreme than Modi who says like, I don't want these people in my country anymore. Let's just go round them all up. We have all their information. They're all right here. Let's do this. Yeah, it's a it's a really good question because the, Singh actually talks about how like early on in you know discussions about what kind of information was going to be collected uh, and and you know in the uh, Aadhaar identification and enrollment process, you know, the, he he mentions that you know enrollment presented a unique opportunity within bureaucratic circles, as he puts it, to gather a broader database on Indian residents, which could include data such as blood group, caste, etc. Um, but the the design team for Aadhaar. Uh, pushed against that largely for like technical reasons where they were like, you know, it, it, it needs to be inclusive. If we start asking a lot more questions about, yeah, like blood group or caste, um, then those those become filter criteria, which make it more and more exclusive, make it more and more difficult to do things like authentication and identification and things like that. And so uh, they instead just, you know, they, they ended up just limiting it to four demographic aspects, only four demographic aspects of name, age, gender, and residential address to make it more inclusive. But you raise a good question here as well, because this actually points to some of the very early discussions around creating a biometrics-based identification system, what became Aadhaar, the, uh, uh, the, the early conversations for it actually started, you know, while while Aadhaar was created in 2010, or rather it came online in 2010, was being created, you know, and, and planned uh, a couple years before that, early discussions for it actually were tied to, uh, you know, in the af after the the Cargill War in 1999, and here I'm I'm you know drawing on some other work on this from people like uh, an anthropologist named Ursula Rao, uh, who who talks about how you know after the Cargill War in 1999, the National Democratic Alliance government, which was a a, a right wing government, uh, were in power between 1999 and 2004, and they had proposed plans for building what was called a National Register of Citizens to differentiate between citizens and illegal immigrants in India. So it had this plan from the early conversations around being exactly that what you what you just talk about Jeremy of like how do we how do we decide who's a, who's an immigrant and who's a, a rightful citizen or resident. But then those plans ended up involve involve uh, you know involving a creation of a national population register of all residents and then populating this register after ascertaining people's citizenship. So it really did have this like national security, anti-immigration politics like really early on. But then like a center left party, the United Progressive Alliance came into power in 2004 and they changed the rationale of this towards being one focused on social security and social services. And that is what ended up becoming the justification for implementing um, Adar. But, you know, it, it's a really good and important question here to be like, 
if that was, if those kinds of questions were being asked in the very early stages of thinking of like a national population register, a biometric-based citizenship, re you know, register, things like that, and then they just kind of switched the justification towards focusing more on like social services and social security and stuff like that. It's a, it's a good and it has to be an ongoing question as to like what would prevent uh, that from, from rearing its ugly head later. We, I don't think we can say with certainty one way or the other, but we can say, you know, those discussions were being had very early on. The justifications shifted, but that could always come back. And, and it's something to, to worry about with any kind of, uh, you know, big identification register like this, that it does present itself a, a, a ready-made tool for far more nefarious ends than what it's currently being used for. So then I think the one question or that someone might have also hearing the history of it is, you know, is this a system that can exist without the threat of being used to track populations? Is this a system that can exist to solely just deduplicate records or because of its existence? I mean, you know, you know what I think, but I'm, I'm sure someone would want to know or might be curious, like, is there an application of a large scale data system that can be used for benign reasons and have safeguards maybe in it that don't allow for surveillance, that don't allow for exclusion from public goods or services, that don't in one way or another like set up an evil eye that does nothing but watch you um, move around <laughs> the, the state? I mean, I, I think the answer is is always going to be no, right? Like, like that's, <laughs> right. Always, that's right. always going to be uh, a part of it. The question is like, how how much the forefront is that a feature of it, right? And what kind of safeguards are put in place to prevent something like that from happening? I mean, I think that uh, um, you know, as as we'll dig into in terms of like the problems on the ground in terms of actually implementing these processes of like enrollment and seeding and authentication that we talked about in the last episode, and we'll talk about more later. Um, as we'll see, like the the complexities and issues that come in, in place show that like, you know, no technology is ever ne is never implemented as this, like the, the fantasy that's in the blueprint. It's always going to be, uh, you know, you know, it's always going to have glitches. It's always going to have errors. It's always going to have difficulties. And so the question is, is like, you know, there, there's, there's no totalizing control and surveillance here, but that doesn't mean that people don't end up having other kinds of consequences to their lives because of those, you know, while those glitches and errors and implementation problems might prevent it from being a, a perfectly functioning Orwellian big brother or whatever, it still doesn't mean that there's all kinds of other both unintended and intended consequences that follow from that, you know, and then, and that really gets at these questions around like inclusion and exclusion. And, uh, as well, like, you know, this idea of seeing like an infrastructure, right. You, you, you talked about like seeing like an infrastructure means asking, what does it mean? This, 
what what's the perspective of the designers here? What's the perspective of the beer, you know, of the bureaucrats implementing it? But also what's the perspective of the system itself, the technology itself that sees, you know, citizens as data records, uh, that, you know, sees them as these uh, subjects of datafication to be made legible and visible. But, you know, as we talked about, everybody is heterogeneous and there's there's a uh, you know Ranjit Singh has a really great concept that he calls the spectrum of resolution and I like this idea of resolution he wrote a nice essay about it um, for AI now has this ongoing series uh, that uh, of essays they're publishing called a new AI lexicon that's like you know what are what are the the new concepts or new terminologies, new words, new thoughts that we need to understand AI? And Ranjit Singh wrote a really interesting essay for this series called uh, on this concept of resolution. And he talks about how uh, you know resolution. To quote him, this essay explores resolution as a metaphor and an analytical resource to map the differential treatment of citizens based on how they are represented in and through data categories in the organization of government services. He, said, he argues that data infrastructures like Adar see people through these data categories. And this gets at what you were talking about, Ed, of like, you know, this is a fundamental part of, the, of any datafication is it's an act of turning something real into something abstract. It has to abstract the, the real world, the material world into these abstractions, into these categorizations, which necessarily simplify and fits people into different kinds of categories. And, you know, Singh talks about how, to quote him, resolution manifests as a spectrum between high to low resolution and the uneven distribution of bureaucratic processes for creating and managing citizen data. This unevenness in turn shapes access to the rights and entitlements of citizenship such that those of high-resolution citizens are expanded while those of low-resolution citizens are curtailed. So, you know, this is really interesting here as well because a fundamental part of ADAR is about, you know, enrolling people into it so that they can then have this, you know, identity as a service, this one-stop shop to do things like get food subsidies, get welfare benefits, get a driver's license, access other kinds of private services, you know. Uh, but in order to do that, you need granular data, right? You need to be authenticated and enrolled and authenticated into the system. And for people who are able to easily provide that data to the system, it works conveniently, it works fast and frictionless, it's, it's nice. You know, you're a high-resolution citizen. You're like, I got a name, I got an age, I got a gender, I got a residential address, I got fingerprints that are able to be read by the fingerprint scanner, I got an iris that can be read by the iris scanner, I got a face that can be photographed. Cool, that's all the data you need from me? No problem, right? I did it on my lunch break, uh, and now, now I'm enrolled in the system, and now I can access, you know, all these different services with, you know, so much easily. But if you're a low resolution citizen and, you know, you, you mess up because you don't have access, you don't have data for one of those necessary categories, even though it's only a handful, uh, then all of a sudden you don't fit into the system. 
right? You, the, the infrastructure does not see you. You are not legible or visible to it. You are invisible, which means you are also invisible to uh, the, the, the rights and entitlements that come with being a citizen that are now so mediated and tied to Adar. You know, there, there's, a, there's a real perversity here that we see so often where these technologies reinforce the, the position and status of people at the top while further, uh, in, uh, you know, marginalizing those at the bottom. It's just a, it's just a further reproduction of already existing uh, social relations. And it's really, it's really fascinating to see just how easy it is. Also, for this infrastructure, which is ordering how, you know, groups are relating to each other, how groups are supposed to exist in relation to one another, right? Creating a background that defines all of them or through which they're defined or, or perceived or experienced. But also that, like, it can, like, it's very easy for this infrastructure to fail to capture a person. The example I thought was really interesting that they used was, let's say used was um, uh, a woman under apartheid who might have been of Indian or national origin classified as asian married to a man classified as colored and live in a colored zone but only be able to work or go to school in an asian zone right and so she's she's immediately coming up the infrastructure trying to classify her quickly so it can decide where not where she can go to school where she can work the the, the racial identity asian is not is a is a is a is a construct that doesn't capture everything here but does also allow her to work in multiple places right allows her to work or to live in a colored zone uh allows her to um only work or go to school in an asian zone um both like limiting her and also allowing a little flexibility in in in, in either one of them uh under this like apartheid system uh but going on to that right like this the one thing that also is pointed out in the lit review that comes in uh, later in the paper is talking about how, you know, like if someone has an identity that isn't fit ne neatly or some categorization that doesn't fit neatly into some, you know, pre-established category or label or index, um, then it's made invisible. And it's usually made invisible by just saying none of the above, right? None of the above means that, okay, like it doesn't fit in the data. So we don't really know how, what we can glean from it or analyze or so just toss it aside. But also it erases pretty quickly the reality of their lives, right? Of their identity, of where they live, uh, who they are, and makes them into uh, a non-person as one of the people um, is uh, laying out. I don't, I can't find their first name, but in this, in this study written by Susan Lee, Susan Lee Starr. Um, so in this, in this study laid out by Susan B. Lee Starr, she says, none of the above works to create non-people who do invisible work and have invisible lives, right? What they end up doing is become residual. You can you can find echoes of them, much like a ghost in the infrastructure, but ultimately it's not registered. They overlap in multiple categories when there's only supposed to be one option, or they're just outside of the scope, or they're not believed by the data clerks um, who do not even impute them correctly or impute them at all into the system. Okay, so then what's the point of this universal uh, biometric database or any sort of large-scale data system if, like, when faced with something that me or you as a human being would be able to very easily understand, um, it is it is deemed, like, too messy um, 
or too uh un, too not 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 smooth enough not simple enough to be erased properly and flattened properly into a category so tossed aside complicating the data system in of itself right that and and this is like just a small representation of a problem that keeps reoccurring in these large-scale data systems or in these large-scale bureaucracies where the the logic is you want to, again, flatten the world as much as possible so that you can quickly put it into categorizations that you can then zoom in and out of to at various levels to have some meaningful relation or build models that have some meaningful relation to the real world, right? But of course, they don't because of the the impulse to simplify and the impulse to invisibilize and the impulse to, to, to prioritize a very specific viewpoint, the viewpoint of the builders or the viewpoints that the builders believe matter. This also reminds me of, uh, there, there's like a really well-known quote from, from this economist named Joan Robinson, who's like a, a, a kind of Keynesian, post-Keynesian economist. And she, she wrote in, 19, in the 1960s that the misery of being exploited by capitalists is nothing compared to the misery of not being exploited at all, right? Which is this idea that it's like, you know, no, fucking sucks being exploited by capitalists but if you try to live in capitalist society not being exploited right not having a job not having a wage like that that the misery yeah. of that is so much more worse um and and i think we can do something very similar here with this concept of resolution and adhar where it's like the misery of being surveilled in digital capitalism is nothing compared to the misery of not being surveilled <laughs> you know of not being legible that's very much what Ranjit Singh is getting at here when we start thinking about biometrics at the margins, right? How are, how are already marginalized people actually being excluded by a system that purports to be universal and universally inclusive because they're not, as you were just talking about, able to fit neatly into categories, able to provide the data the system needs in order to be given, uh, you know, this, this identification number, which then is tied to rights and entitlements of being a citizen um, or rights and entitlements of being a consumer for that matter. matter, matter, matter. Aadhaar is interesting in part because it is also because of that numbers game it you know it blows up to such a like incomprehensible scale so many of these relations that we see acting in other ways like at a smaller scale I just read a study uh, yesterday that was talking about how like health tracking devices you know Fitbits Apple Watch stuff like that only have health benefits for high class wealthy people versus you know for 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 poorer people that are that are using these technologies as well don't don't actually realize any of the health benefits of being like tracked or having behavioral nudges or even like you know insurance premium discounts for you know the the data provided from a, a Fitbit or something like that in large part because wealthy people have the the time uh, resources and education to actually like you know do things that you know your Fitbit is like oh you 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 should go on a on a walk 
You know, it's going to be good for your health or you should eat, uh, you know, better food. You know, it's good for your health. You should do this. You should do that. You know, nudge the nudge here and nudge there. Um, whereas like poor people, lower class people don't have the time, resources or uh, and or education to actually be able to put that data to use for their own good. And, and we see this constantly, right? Where like that's a perfect excuse of like a high resolution versus low resolution uh, use of data. It ties into what like, you know, Chris Gilliard has written about and talked about on, T on, on TMK with, uh, you know, around like luxury surveillance, right? This idea that you, you choose to be surveilled, whether it's by your Fitbit or whether it's by Adar, because it's going to benefit you in some way. You think that you're out, you think that you are shielded from the negative consequences of that and you will instead reap the rewards of that legibility and, and the, of that visibility. Um, Whereas other people uh, are excluded from that for various different reasons. One thing or one part that emerges here when we start talking about the bureaucracies also is when I was reading through the literature review, I was thinking about how I don't know of any of the literature about infrastructures in of themselves, but, but how it still maps on pretty nicely and smoothly onto uh, descriptions of bureaucracies, um, which I guess makes sense because they use this metaphor. Singh and Jackson used to seeing like infrastructure, seeing like a state metaphor. But I think that then one thing probably would be good is to visit, as they do in the paper, the their use of the seeing like a state metaphor. Right, uh, fellow anarchist um, James Scott <laughs> is. Um, <laughs> argument here, at least the way that they're deploying it, is that seeing like a state is referring to how, like we're talking about seeing like a seeing from, right? Seeing from the perspective of the state, seeing from the perspective of bureaucracy, seeing from the perspective of like an institution that wants to organize people in a certain way, that wants to reproduce a certain type of person and has to do th so through like certain processes and procedures, right? Through routines, through standards, through repetition, right? Through tradition. Um, that in one way or another, order how people live their lives and how they connect to each other, how they're supposed to live their lives, how they're supposed to connect to each other, how they resist these efforts, as some of the people do at Ardar. And with identification, you know, as they lay out, right, I'll quote here, seeing like a state showcases how bureaucratic procedures simplify and reorganize citizens' identities to make them legible to state actors. Simplification and the pursuit of legibility, however, is only the beginning of the processes of building and maintaining data systems, an equally expansive domain domain of distributed and collaborative work in operationalizing data systems as public data infrastructures goes into securing the validity and legitimacy of its core data categories among citizens. So I think that's yeah, that's pretty much trying to say that like there's a lot of work that goes into the state of of, of constructing abstract categories, right, that are simplistic, and also convincing people that these infrastructures are real and uh, meaningful ways of organizing the world and also ensuring that other people at other levels of the society, not just as individuals, but maybe as collectives or as companies or as firms or as other groups inside of the government or a bureaucracy or what have you, also viewed as legitimate, right? And in one way or another, organize around it, right? The example used here is income. You know, income is represents how poor a person is supposed to be. Poor citizen is their eligibility to access welfare uh, um, services, right? And and Jackson and Singh, right? These categories are not only assigned top down to citizens by bureaucrats, but must also be claimed by citizens from the ground up, right? 
So you have to do certain types of paperwork to prove that you fit into this categorization or, or into this category, leading to like the dehumanizing, in, you know, and and what's, I don't know what the word for it is, but like the this is a process that strips people of dignity, having to prove that they don't make enough money to not qualify for a government service, but also like if any of you have ever been in poverty or had to apply for some programs, know how easy it is to not apply for a program that you do qualify for or Mm -hmm. how easy it is to not qualify for a program that you actually do qualify for. That You can be food insecure, but because of some other arbitrary uh, decision that was made by a bureaucrat, you are not at the sufficient level to be accepted into the program, right? Or to accept or to you know qualify for assistance, you know these are the sort of decisions at you know small levels. Whether it's like what type of paperwork you have to do, what type of proof you provide, to larger levels like what are the cutoffs and what other arbitrary values or um, you know materials signifiers we're going to use to determine this or that person doesn't qualify for it. But all of them again come down to the fact that you have a bureaucracy and you have its privileged viewpoint deciding on the data it's going to input to organize. How it's going to how it's organize and inform how it's going to organize other people. Then from there, what databases it's going to build that they're going to have to furnish, both from the top down and making its own categories, but from the bottom up and applying and furnishing more records and furnishing more proof and furnishing more uh, information that can be used to associate this with that signifier. Okay, if you have it like millions of people providing paperwork about. Uh, their income levels, about what they, you know, how frequently they eat, about how what they own, about you know their health care, their health conditions. Then maybe you can render new categories and new data categories and new data bases um, from the perspective of the bureaucracy that also say, oh, okay, we've noticed that like this is a trend or that this is a relation, and then so we'll formalize that. And you also have to prove that that is another thing that you meet the criteria of. Yeah, and there, there's been some, uh, you know, studies of of other of these kinds of welfare systems and like the the automation of them showing that you know often sometimes by design they are meant to strip out any of that like compassion or empathy that a human might have for uh, an applicant or a recipient of welfare, right? Because an automated system is just a yes or no, right? Like, do you fit the criteria or not? Have you provided the data that we need uh, or not? Have you filled out the form correctly or not? You know, uh, there, there's no room for arguing with an algorithm, right? It's just a, it's just a yes or no binary. If this, then that. And and this has been, you know, there's a, a an example that's kind of ongoing in Australia around the national disability insurance scheme that a, a minister here in Australia quite explicitly was talking about how, um, you know, by doing this like hyper datafication, categorization, automation of this scheme, it'll be really good because it'll, uh, it'll prevent human bureaucrats from, from bending the rules, you know, be, from, being co- from being swayed yeah. by these, these stories of people. Yeah, you know, instead, but instead they talk about it as like this, um, this universal equity, right? No, everybody needs to be treated the same. And the only way to do that is through an algorithm. Yeah, everyone needs to be treated the same, which is poorly. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, and as we see with Singh talking about this spectrum of resolution, everybody is not treated the same, right? There still is massive unevenness uh, in the, the, the distribution of, of, 
of, of care, of services, of entitlements, of rights, but instead it's all laundered through these, these data-intensive, uh, algorithmic, automated systems that give this veneer of objectivity that allow um, the human bureaucrats to be like, instead of blaming the manager, because the manager is just another human, you, you can blame the technology. That's not human, right? Be like, sorry, system won't let me do it. I, I, I'm, I, I'm my hands are tied by the system just as much as your hands are tied by the system. It becomes this like transcendent thing that, uh, that sits above and administers everybody, right? It's it's Peter at the pearly gates passing judgment on everybody. That's what these systems so often end up becoming, right? And you don't know why that judgment was made necessarily. You know, you don't did you did you have bad data or did you have good data? You don't know. Mm -hmm. You don't know. You just yeah. know what the system decided, right? Do you get into heaven or you go to hell? <laughs> you know, that that's what it yeah. ends up becoming. Flip of the coin, essentially. Yeah, and I want to I want to drill down even more into this concept of resolution, and, you know, which is really crucial to to this idea of seeing like an infrastructure and the kind of politics of these data infrastructures. Um, before we go on to actually talking about some of the the uh, empirical ethnographic details around how this system kind of falls apart in its implementation at the street level. And, you know, I'm going to just quote here from Singh where he says, this is Singh and Jackson saying, on the one hand, when the efforts to represent and claim representation through data align, they produce visibility in high resolution. High resolution citizens find it easier to align their data with their way of life. High resolutions pose the problem of knowing too much and contend with the potential of invasion of privacy and surveillance. You know, this is what we talk about a lot. You know, this is what happens when the system knows too much about you, when you're when the data is too granular, when you're too high, high resolution, all of a sudden privacy starts breaking down, surveillance and control comes into play. But you know, this gets to that idea of being exploited under capital, uh, by capital, that fucking sucks. Not being exploited, even worse. So right. Singh and Jackson <laughs> go on to say, on the other hand, when the work of representing and claiming representation through data is misaligned, it produces visibility in low resolution. Low resolution citizens struggle to overcome the differences between their data and their way of life. Lower resolution runs the problem of not knowing enough and manifest within challenges of data-driven marginalization and objection. This spectrum between low and high resolution is crucial for analyzing the politics and uneven consequences of data infrastructures. So when this, is, when this infrastructure doesn't know enough about you, that it doesn't result in your privacy being violated, it results in you being marginalized even more within society. Um, because again, you know, these, these platforms are Peter at the pearly gates, right? Do they know enough about you to let you into heaven or do they not know enough about you? And by default, they don't see you, right? It's fucking John Cena over here. You can't see me. You can't see me, but you, <laughs> but you want the system to see you because the system is what mediates right. your connection to rights and entitlements and social services. Service, service, service.
beautiful. I've never thought we'd do a WWE uh, metaphor in with uh, <laughs> the Indian surveillance system. <laughs> oh, man. So should we move on to talking about some of the um, problems that actually come with trying to do these processes of enrollment, seeding, and authentication on the street level? I would like to say, or I, I do like the, uh, the. I think also another additional helpful thing is the analytical differences that they highlighted in there. They had like a, this, this little table, which was interesting oh, yeah. that we could probably talk through a bit. Yeah. Um, so... If you look at the paper, it's left-hand side, seeing like a state, right-hand side, seeing like an infrastructure. Um, the first point is vantage. What is the perspective like we're talking about? What are you seeing from? Um, and from a state, it's a singular and synoptic uh, point of view. So basically just trying to, trying to look from one perspective, one vantage point, top, sorry, top down. And organize or dictate relations in the ecology in which people are going to live in and relate to one another and, and thrive or die um, from I, that I, one. I had, huh? I had to look up the word synoptic. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. <laughs> it's just synopsis or something. Yeah, that's what I, you know, that's, I was uh, fucking, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, fucking SAT prep kicked into my head doing the, <laughs> did the prefix. Uh, prefix. Yeah. Uh, analysis, like okay, it's just synoptic. I had a cocktail once called a synoptic. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, if I got, I'm open up a bar with that name. Um, Something in hypnotic. That was what always. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good. That's a good pair of drinks. One's a hot drink, uh, synoptic, and then the other one's a cold drink and hypnotic. <laughs> yeah. So. So, so the state is, yeah, it's seeing you from this like singular and synoptic or, or, you know, it's just, a, it's a singular viewpoint. It's summarizing your life uh, mm -hmm. into a, into a thin category. And then from there we get into uh, infrastructures, which vantage point, which is plural. So there are multiple loci, multiple points from which it's looking at you and it's distributed, right? So the infrastructure is dealing with multiple identifier records or multiple identifier categories and then multiple perspectives that it's looking at people from because it's trying to, it's still trying to simplify, but it's also trying to build up enough enough identifiers, enough like, you know, nodes of data around a person and groups of people to identify them in the name of unique identifiers that can then de-identify a duplicate identifiers, right? And then go on to never create duplicated identifiers. For and then the who does this work? Who does this work, right? Uh, for the state, it's planners and state officials. Bureaucrats, you know, for infrastructure, it's frontline workers and users here, citizens, right? Which is also an interesting development. There are instances in which the state does deploy or use frontline workers or users, but not the way that an infrastructure does, right? And I think an analogous way would be how platforms use um, users and also use frontline workers. Um, in the public sphere to kind of expand uh, the uh, the platform itself, right? So one example might be how Uber is able to expand its partnerships with the public sphere by um, offering discounted rides, negotiating discounted rides and subsidies with cities, with hospitals, 
with restaurants, with businesses during the pandemic, right? You know, that does a deal in the pandemic and then opens up the deal for more work, but that work is in the future, most like more of the work, more of the real productive stuff of expanding the markets is being done by the frontline workers, by the users, and mm. by the crisis, right? And then here, I think similarly, the crisis being you know duplicate records, frontline workers, and users being the people who are literally told, here, go out and do the work, go out and uh, make legible the billions of people, but also come back and give us proof that you are a unique individual, right? Mm-hmm. When is this work done? Seeing like a state, it's in the administration of the state, right? And infrastructure, it's in navigating the data representation. So the real work in an infrastructure like RDR would be like, okay, it's not the real work is done once you you bring in back all the data, you bring in back all the information, and now you're trying to figure out how it relates to one another, right? How or how to map it out, what to include, what to exclude, what to what to focus on, what to make invisible, what to say is. Um, none of the above and what isn't, which, which is, which bleeds into how's this work done, right? Simplification is the way that it's done for the state. Erasure is one of the main ways it's done for the infrastructure. And I think those two sound similar, but it's, but maybe a way to think about it is, you know, the state may just choose one type of, might choose just like three or four, um, racial categories for people. Um, whereas in infrastructure, may allow you uh, to put in multiple, but it's still going to choose or prioritize uh, which one is the one that you get identified as, right? Maybe that's not a decision you make when you fill out the form, but that's a decision that gets made by the system itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, why is this work done for the state's control, you know, domination, coercion, um, control of the people's bodies, control of their lives, control of who gets to live or die. For the infrastructure, it's ostensibly done to establish like these, um, you know, access and membership. I, every time, every time this uh, comes up, I get flashbacks to when I was reading your book, Jathan, and finally fucking understood the lose. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, but like you know, the infrastructure I think is concerned with. I think if you think of it, if you were thinking of it metaphorically, maybe think of it physically, whereas like you can think of a literal structure and you can't immediately access every single point of the structure. And some parts of the structure, the deeper you get into them, uh, the more unable you are to access other parts, right? So maybe the think of it as like an infrastructure guides you into saying, okay, you get into, you get past this checkpoint, which means you go down that branch, which means you get into this checkpoint. So now you have access to these things, but you cannot go down the other branches or the other checkpoints, right? Mm-hmm. You're not you're not someone who doesn't get to go into those categories, and what does it produce? The state's legibility, so like the ability to just be read instantly um, and understood and organized and plopped in and out by the state. Uh, but the infra- for the infrastructure is the spectrum of resolution that Jathan was talking about, right? High resolution individuals versus low resolution individuals, you know, and and the consequences and the outcomes of being a high versus a low resolution person. Yeah, and you know it, it's. The, the, the fact that we're also talking about the Indian context here with these differences of like seeing like a state and seeing like an infrastructure is really interesting as well historically because the technology of fingerprinting was a writ was, was invented, uh, in the 19th century by the British colonial as a way to administer the Indian population, right? So it is very interesting that, you know, 
Aadhaar being the world's largest biometric database, which includes fingerprints, uh, is using and relying on a technology that was originally created by British colonizers as a way of seeing like a state, seeing like an empire to administer uh, the, you know, unruly and, uh, you know, at that point, unidentifiable population of the Indian colony. Again, a very interesting connection here from like colonial uh, capitalism all the way up to digital capitalism and the kind of evolutions that happen along that, both technologically and politically. Yeah, I mean, I think let's get into that. That you know, that is a really good distinctions here. That's given us a really good kind of theoretical, critical analysis of the the kind of politics of this data infrastructure. I think let's spend the last part of the episode really getting into some of the actual like, what's this looking like on the ground, right? Like, how are people being made into high resolution versus low resolution citizens through these processes of actually implementing ADAR, through these processes of enroll, enrolling people into it, of seeding uh, you know, other databases and doing uh, deduplication uh, you know, once people get enrolled. So everything is just controlled by, everything is just reliant on this one centralized Aadhaar unique identifier and and then authentication, right? How do you go through the process of of, of proving people are who they say they are? Um, I, I want to read a, an, a, a, a kind of a longish quote here, uh, a long paragraph from some ethnographic work that uh, an anthropologist I mentioned before, Ursula Rao, did on Adar, um, where she was accompanying um, social workers providing services to homeless people, uh, trying to, and, and, and she was observing their efforts in trying to enroll homeless people into Adar, right? I mean, we're talking about, you know, the people that this system is meant to supposedly include into the government and, you know, and thus provide them with that, that, that ticket, that membership, that access to getting, you know, social services that they need around food subsidies, housing, stuff like that. This is just extremely revealing about how the uh, the system starts breaking down from the very beginning, and uh, at when when it tries to uh, include people at the margins into it. You know, she she's talking about her observations in some of the enrollment stations, the Adar enrollment stations in poor neighborhoods in East Delhi, and and talking about how there you know these young technicians at these enrollment stations in, in charge of, of, you know, taking people's biometric data, taking their demographic data um, to put them in the ADAR system. 
what kind of problems that they came up against. So she says, you know, quote, they were not sophisticated technicians handling advanced computer technology at a distance from the social body. Instead, they found themselves forced to adopt a hands-on approach and twist and turn the uncouth bodies of homeless citizens to create decent data sets. The fingers of laborers were a never-ending source of annoyance. Lost fingers, damaged fingertips, and rubbed-off skin contours made fingerprints unrecognizable to a system that posits healthy young bodies as the norm. Age, exposure to nature, and hard manual labor had worn off those marks that were perceived as infallible signs of physical individuality. The first effort at encoding usually failed. Enrollers became imaginative and developed tricks to read fingers that resisted instant transparency. A wet towel was passed from person to person. Rub your hands more strongly, they would repeat up to five times to produce a sufficiently detailed reading. Persons with damaged hands had to wait for a specially authorized enroller who could certify their disabled status to arrive. The person never showed up. All those bearing the marks of the high-risk construction industry in the form of deep scars, severed fingers, or mutilated hands remained excluded. No horrifying. No horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and she talks about how, like, uh, you know, to, to quote again, tireless repetition, substitutes, and the acceptance of a high error rate became pragmatic solutions that folded deviant bodies into an electronic system of recognition. You know, right from the beginning, this first process of enrollment, we already see how these, you know, quote unquote, uncouth bodies, right? The, the bodies of people at the margins, homeless people, hard manual laborers, uh, were resistant to being enrolled in the system, but it wasn't because they themselves were, were resisting enrollment in, in a, in a direct way of, you know, avoiding avoiding it in some way, but rather, you know, they were trying to provide the data the system demanded, but the system was not designed in a way that had those people in mind. They were not the subjects, the ideal users of Adar, and the system wasn't designed for those ideal users. And so these frontline workers at these enrollment stations, you know, they just be, they become annoyed. She talks about how class differences uh, really, you know, reared its head here where the, the kind of middle class technicians, you know, looked down upon the lower classes that they were trying to enroll, become an, became annoyed with them, uh, you know, turned them away, just said, you know what, a high error rate is just, the, you know, that's the pragmatics of a system like this. And we, talk, we talked about our how, you know, even an error rate of 1% with a system like this is, you know, 13 million plus people that are excluded. We can already see the system starting to fall apart at the very first instance of trying to just enroll people into the system. And I, and you know, it's like we're talking about, right? The system is constant. I think that also gives it an interesting dynamic too. I mean, there's some overlap, right? Between the way that class rears its ugly head in when you are applying for welfare through the state versus when uh, frontline workers or Ardar's, Ardar's um, you know, appendages are getting you to sign on um, to the resolution system, the way in which uh, like categorical judgments or weird judgments about whether or not you actually belong 
still enter into the fray, right? Which I think also gets back to that earlier discussion we had about how, you know, when I playfully asked if there's any way that this could work (laughs) without (laughs) turning into surveillance, and you said not without the safeguards, right? One of the safeguards goes against like the very core of it, which is like just by the virtue of the way that a lot of these bureaucracies and a lot of the way that the, whether it's the state or the infrastructure, um, collect data or try to uh, categorize data, um, they're dealing with people who are going to deal with people who are much likely, like almost always in a lower class position than them, right? And in need of some type of service or in need of some type of good. And uh, in one way or another, going to get shamed for it eventually, right? Shamed either mm-hmm. for not having the proper documentation, shamed for not being able to uh, be read to be legible, shamed for um, not doing it correctly, shamed for this, that, or the third, right? Which in of itself probably plays just as much a role in exclusion as does simply being a little too human for the data categorization system to flatten correctly. Exactly. You know, Ursula Rao in, in this ethnography also talks about how, you know, you, you were talking about earlier about how like um, people trying to apply for you know, welfare benefits and so on, you know, having problems with the application process. And that's by design, right? These systems are designed to, to, to stand in people's way, to be so obtuse, especially in a, in a place like the U.S. where, you know, the forms are so complex and so long and so intrusive and they want so much documentation that no reasonable person would ever have. Um, but there is also the flip side of that as well is uh, we see so many cases of people not applying for things that they're eligible for because they didn't know that they could apply for it. Rao talks about how, you know, in, in some of her conversations with um, homeless people being enrolled in Adar and in her efforts in trying to help them get enrolled, right? They talk about how, like, why, why would homeless citizens sign up for Adar? Why would they get their unique identification? That she, there's a, a quote, a, a little conversation here that Ursula had with, um, uh, with a with a person named Raju, where uh, so Ursula says, "Why did you enroll in uh, U- UID, un- unique identification, Raju? We will get an identity card, Ursula. How does that help, Raju? The police won't harass us, Ursula. What else can you do with the card, Raju? I don't know. You tell me, <laughs> you know. And and so for for them, it was about like." Uh, by being made visible, the police won't harass me. I don't know what else I can do with it, right? Like, I don't know. You tell me. Are there other services I can access with this card? All I know is that um, I'm sub- I'm subjected to police harassment all the time. I'm invisible to the state, but I'm highly visible to the police. Uh, and but by getting this Aadhaar identity card, the police won't harass me, and and that that's the best that I know I can do with it. Right? Like that is in itself a uh, really interesting, uh, you know, aspect here of like how is this. How does this actually work in terms of, you know, universal inclusion and uh, into state services instead for the, you know, for the person that uh, Ursula Rao was talking to? It's about like, I just want to be made visible to the state so that I can become less visible to the police. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's one. That's a crazy way to think about it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So, 
you know, uh, Singh and Jackson go through, you know, other problems of, of this kind of breakdown and failure of the infrastructure, not in the enrollment. Yes. Actually, this is a really great detail here that was just so, you know, one of those like small details that contains a whole world where, so the question of if Aadhaar is voluntary or mandatory constantly flips, like there's Supreme, there's Indian Supreme Court cases about, you know, is this a mandatory thing or is this a voluntary thing? Can we mandate it or can we not, man, you know, can we the state mandate it or can we not mandate it? And that's still like very much a kind of uh, issue of contention and question. Singh gives this really interesting ex example of his own experience enrolling in the Adar system. And he said, you know, with regard to voluntary consent to seating, the Adar enrollment form asked the following yes or no question. Quote, I have no objection to the UIDAI sharing information provided by me to the UIDAI with agencies engaged in delivery of public services, including welfare services. Some issues emerged when Ranjit Singh marked no in response to this question during his enrollment. In other words, saying, no, I don't want you to share. I do have an objection to share to you sharing my data. Quote, as I was leaving the enrollment office, I looked at my receipt and realized that the enrolling agent had entered yes to the voluntary data sharing question when I had marked no. When I mentioned this to him, he responded, that question has to be answered yes. Otherwise, you won't be able to connect Adar with any government service. Uh, Ranjit goes on, what does that mean? Why can't we enter no? The agent says, the answer to this question is yes, 100% of the time. You cannot say no. Otherwise, what is the point of having an Adar number? Ranjit goes on, although I can exercise consent in individual future instances of seeding, Generally, there is no barrier to my enrollment into any welfare scheme. So, so this is also very interesting where it's like you're given this option of, of quote-unquote voluntary consent to data sharing. If you try to say no, then the agent's like, okay, so you marked yes. No, I said no. Y yeah, no, I heard you marked yes. Right. <laughs> But but I said no 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 the answer has to be yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so like uh, uh, it's so Kafka like Kafka esque in, mm -hmm. in that way. It's so it's it's almost like uh, I mean it's funny if it wasn't so serious, right? It's almost like they're trying to pull Jedi mind tricks on them. <laughs> <laughs> this is the category you wish to be a part of. This is the category you wish to be a part of. <laughs> these kinds of like weird breakdowns of the bureaucracy and the infrastructure uh, just go on and on, you know, uh, uh, Singh and Jackson talk about like in the seeding phase, right? So, in the, you know, this uh, of, of like seeding the Aadhaar numbers of beneficiaries into databases like the PDS or the public distribution uh, system, which is like, you know, for like food subsidies and stuff like that. So, in other words, seeding means how do you eliminate all of your data in these uh, disparate databases and replace it with this, the one singular Adar number? Uh, and and you know he goes on to talk about how all these problems that came with trying to 
provide your Aadhaar number to these databases, which required, you know, each individual database wanted some kind, you know, wanted like an official letter with your Aadhaar, you know, unique identifier on it from the, uh, from the, the, the uh, unique identification, you know, authority. Um, but these letters were constantly lost in the post office, so people weren't receiving them, or people moved, um, or they didn't have, you know, in the case of like homeless people or refugees, like they didn't have a permanent address where the letter could be sent to. You know, so there there was all these different problems, and instead, you know, the the uh, the the unique identification authority, you know, the, the, that administered Adar was like, well, we'll, we'll resolve this issue by letting enrollees download a, an E Adar, uh, letter, right? Uh, and, you know, so using a, a one-time passcode sent to their mobile number, um, on record in the database. But, you know, at, at times, People didn't have, you know, people had different mobile numbers, right? They would lose a phone, they'd get another phone, or their phone would break and they'd get another phone. So, you know, they were getting these passcodes sent to mobile numbers that were no longer theirs or no longer active. Um, so they couldn't get the e-letter or, you know, there are also all these cases where they did get the e-letter, but, you know, they would then take that to other bureaucrats at like, you know, at the, the public distribution system or, or public distribution service, you know, uh, and the bureaucrats would be like, no, 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 we can't accept this e-letter because we need an original copy. Uh, but the, but the, the authentication uh, agency is like, there is no original copy. It's all the same thing. Like, so it just, again, it becomes this, like, this, this comedy of bureaucracy. I'm telling you, <laughs> Kafka would have written the best shit about DM, uh, DMVs. I'm t I just, especially New York's, the point system. I just, I get war flashbacks thinking about it. The key is you, you got to make a friend that works in the DMV. So that way they, they can work yeah. for you when you have to go get shit like that. That's why it just pays to be a really friendly person. Yeah, that's what that was. At the end of the day, uh, that's what saved me. Just being really friendly and also being like, look, it's Friday, 430. You close in 30 minutes. Please help me. I'll cry. I'll <laughs> fake cry in front of you, but I'll cry. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> help me out. And that's what these automated systems are supposed to eliminate. That right. kind of <laughs> That's Crying me abusing the rules. That's illegal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, am a, I am a criminal. I'm a sick man. It's also, it's, it's Kafka, but it's also Catch-22, right? It's like, it's such that, you know, well, you need this letter in order to get this service. Yeah, but I need that service in order to get the letter, right? <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> so there's all this disconnect that also is, you know, linked to uh, the actual, like, trying to implement this universal, inclusive system. But there's so, but there's, you know, all this all this complexity of like, you know, like we were saying before, the frontline workers and the users, that's where the rubber really hits the road here. And, and so that stuff just goes on and on and on, right? They also talk about the, you know, these problems with the, you know, so you got problems with enrollment, you got problems with seeding uh, your, you know, once you get the Aadhaar number, once you're enrolled, then you got problems seeding it in other databases so that you can then access those services. And then you finally got problems with authentication, right? Uh, so like uh, Singh and Jackson talk about how authenticating Aadhaar, you know, your Aadhaar identity um, has to happen every single month. 
uh, to constantly prove that you are who you say you are, that you are eligible for, you know, these services. Uh, and, and so, like, he, he, he talks about how, like, in practice, authentication, you know, it's supposed to be this, like, seamless thing, right? It's supposed to just be so quick and easy, just a, a monthly chore that you have to do, just authenticate who you are, and okay, all good to go. And he's saying, you know, however, in practice, authentication has not worked so seamlessly. For example, while enrollment requires a combination of fingerprints and iris scans for unique identification, authentication currently relies only on fingerprints, which has created barriers for user groups, as we talked about, like manual laborers, elderly people. There's also all kinds of problems with race as well, you know, as we know, like facial recognition, doesn't work so well um, as he talks about with old people um, but also people with darker skin color right so like these authentic these problems of authentication it's not just like oh finally I'm enrolled finally I seeded my my Aadhaar number in the district in, in, in these different uh, public and private services now I can't authenticate myself. Now I'm shut out. You know, I have to do this every single month. He, you know, he provides um, a, a, a really illustrative quote here uh, from a, a, a 68 year old woman who is trying to authenticate her identity um, at a at a food subsidy um, station. Right. So she sa uh, he says. This, this woman needs a stick to walk. She trekked four kilometers to the ration shop from her village for the third time in three days to buy 35 kilos of wheat. Uh, the, the machine had recognized the fingerprints on her pale weathered hands in February, but it failed to do so on that day in March. She first put her thumb and after that got rejected, her index finger rejected. Both times a pre-recorded voice rang out in Hindi but translated into English, your Adar is incorrect. The old villagers in the queue sounded exacerbated with the repeated Adar authentication errors. You know, we have tried with one, two, all 10 fingers, said a man in his 50s. Should we put our necks also into the device? Uh, that day too, she went back to her home, to her village without any food grain. Just wild, right? Just wild breakdown at every single phase of the system. You know, we talked about in the last episode what this is meant to, you know, from the viewpoint of the engineers and designers and marketers of the system, what it was meant to look like, uh, you know, in, in the blueprint, in the model. Uh, but that is not how it actually works at all on the ground. It's kind of beautiful. It's kind of beautiful that this like massive system that is a little terrifying uh, actually is a failure on the ground, but also a terrifying additionally in that like, even though it has these massive failures, it's still going to steamroll ahead and it already has to an extent, right? They've already more or less cleaned up the first phase of enrollment. Um, and now they just have to go to seating and... Um, uh, what's the third stage? Authentication. And authentication, right? And they're st they're done with. And they haven't they haven't finished stage two, have they? Well, no. So so they're it's it's like different people are at different roles, right? So like they have actually enrolled over a billion people, right? Like one point um, two five billion, right? Yeah, like they've enrolled over a billion people, and now you know there there's all these problems through these like you know these these stories of you know, not only with enrollment, but with seeding and authentication and authentication being this ongoing monthly process. So it's like, it's not a one and done, right? It just provides like further and further uh, points where these gates that you have to go through, right? You have to, you have to 
pass through these different gatekeeping mechanisms, but by continually having to pass through gates, at some point, the gate might decide to not work, it might decide to just reject you. Like what you talk about in your book with these some of the smart spaces, right? Or smart, spa- smart spaces, right? Where you can, like there's this goal of trying to make it so that you can flow in and out of spaces if you have the right password, if you have the right device or recognition, but like, what the fuck happens if like, let's say the, what happened to my, what happens to my friend all the time where like she tries to go into uh, her apartment and if the internet is out, then you just can't get in because the, you, there's no key. And it's only, it's only like a digital thing that you can get in or through your phone in an app where you can uh, send a signal saying I'm at the door and it will open it up for you. Beautiful. Yeah. Like that, that was an, ex- that was the same exact kind of example I gave in my book that happened to me with like my apartment complex had this gate and yeah, you had to like, you know, hit the electronic keypad with a fob, but sometimes it decided to just not work and you don't know why you don't know why it started to not work. Was it too cold? Was it too hot? <laughs> was the Wi-Fi down? Was, you know, did, did a, did a rat gnaw on a cord? Did it just decide to fuck you? You know, like, you <laughs> don't know. <laughs> yeah. And now scale that up, right? Scale that up at such a, like, unimaginable level of, of this numbers game. And it's not just access to your apartment. It's access to food grain. It's access to other social services. It's access to private services, right? Like, yeah, it, it's it, it's it's such a, a like this, you know, Adar, uh, you know, through the lens of the really crucial and fantastic research done by people like Ranjit Singh, Stephen Jackson, Ursula Rao, uh, Pajwan Singh. Uh, you know, these these scholars who are looking at this, you know, in depth at different levels, you know, really crucial for understanding how Aadhaar contains within itself all, like so many of the logics and so many of the, the operations and so many of the outcomes and consequences that we see, that we talk about on Team K all the time. And, but, but here it's just scaled up at such an unimaginable level. This just all fits together. The, the, the real takeaway here with understanding these problems of failure is also something that I've increasingly, you know, that we've all increasingly been harping on and has been something I've been thinking about more and more is this like politics of glitch and error. No system is going to work perfectly. You know, no system is going to work in the way that its designers and, and uh, engineers planned for it to work. It might approximate that to varying degrees, but it's going to work differently. And it's going to work differently for different people at different times and different places. And so the question is always, you know, what happens when people fall through the cracks, right? And who doesn't fall through the cracks, right? We talk about so often how, what a weird coincidence that, you know, uh, when, when like Amazon's HR system decided very recently that it was going to uh, like steal wages and deny holiday to a bunch of workers, yeah. right? Like uh-huh. weirdly, uh, none of the people at the top had any of those problems, right? Weirdly, these glitches and, and you know, quote unquote glitches and quote unquote errors so often seem to uh, uh, fuck those already at the bottom. And, and, and we can see that with happening here with Adar as well. Like this, this reproduction of, of, 
of uh, of social relations and and uh, poli- you know, power dynamics uh, are are just reinforced by the glitch, by the error, more often than they are uh, escaped or resisted by the glitch or by the error. Um, and I think that you know, Adar is a is a is a really powerful case in point for for that. I think. And for and for the type of system that will dismantle with hammers and 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 uh, sickles and. Um, <laughs> Any other tool that has a metal uh, implement at the end that will make it easier to strike down (laughs) whatever it's working. (laughs) I think with that, that'll come to a close on our our blockbuster two-part exploration of Adar, there is a lot more to come on this. You know, yeah. this is, this yeah. is still something ongoing and it's still, it's a, it's a case study that is important, not only for, you know, itself as a system that's affecting the lives of over a billion people. Um, but also again, for, for what it tells us about these larger dynamics of like the politics of data infrastructure, um, the politics of, you know, trying to solve issues of inclusion through technology, trying to solve issues of, you know, universal social services through these technologies that more often cause more problems than they alleviate, I think. Um, So with that, like I said, more to come uh, in the new year. I think we're, you know, we got we got plans. We got plans. Get some some people on like Ranjit Singh and others to talk to us in more in depth, uh, not just about their work, but you know to help us really, you know, not just building on their work, but really have discussions with them so we can dive even deeper into this. So, with that, I want to thank our comrades, our dear patrons, for subscribing. Thank you for listening, and you know, until next time. Until next time. Until next time. Later. 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 Later.
Thank you.